0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me today are my colleagues Chris Dillow, the Investors Chronicles Economist, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Leonora Walters and Personal Finance Writer Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to have special guest Adrian Lowcock of AXA Wealth on the show we're going to be talking about the budget and the implications for savers and investors. On the one hand, we've seen some improvements to ISAs, but on the other hand, we've seen a reduction of the pension's lifetime allowance to a million pounds. So overall, um, do we think the budget changes are good for savers and investors? Adrian Locock, could I start with you, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think what we've seen with ISAs is a little bit of tinkering around the edges, really. So um, improved flexibility for cash ISAs, being able to take money out and then put it back in in the same tax year Um, and uh, an introduction of the help to buy ISA. Um, and that, that in itself is, is quite complicated a help to buy there's lots of sort of rules and governing what, when and when you can use it how you can use it and I think it'll, we'll probably need to see more detail on that over time to see how, how it's executed because there's sort of limitations on how much you can put in restrictions on when you can use it what's pri- ha- price of house purchase you can use it um, and the other interesting thing that affects ISAs is the um, personal savings allowance uh, where by basic rate taxpayers can get £1,000 tax-free on their savings which really puts uh, a question mark over the role that cash ISAs will play for for a lot of savers because cash ISAs effectively do the same job. They give you tax-free savings, um, but this £1,000 allowance will effectively take a lot of people out of the need for cash ISAs, so they they may find that they could use their cash ISAs in stocks and shares and use the whole allowance of stocks and shares instead of cash. Uh Um, So it's quite interesting uh, sort of rule changes on ISAs, and I think uh, it's time perhaps to take a pause and, and and review the whole ISA to make sure we don't lose what's critical and, and what makes it successful, which is has been its simplicity and straightforwardness about it. Um, and I'm keen that we sort of pause and just you know, let, the, let the dust settle for a while.
0: OK, so the fact that the Chancellor has abolished the savings taxes on the first £1,000 does mean you might need to re-examine that, those cash ISA holdings. It um, does,
1: but uh, yeah. I, I would pro- probably sort of hesitate that, uh, and, and emphasise that if you've already got a cash ISA, then you shouldn't rush to do anything because ISA still ha- ISA, the ISA wrapper is still very popular, very popular with the government. It's a very well-recognised, tax-efficient wrapper. Uh, and, you know, governments may change and, and, and policies may change and the ISA wrapper could change and therefore you'd probably be better keeping it in the ISA wrapper than than, than, than giving up a wrapper.
0: OK. Uh, Chris Dillo, do you do you have a feeling whether the budget changes are overall good for savers and investors? I
2: think... Insofar as they do anything, they are mildly good. I mean, that personal savings allowance is worth £200 for for, for um, anyone with sufficient savings to benefit fully from it. Mm-hmm. But let's put that into context. Um, if you've got £100,000 split between um, cash and equities evenly, then... £200 is just a 0.4% rise in the stock market. (laughs) And that's just the difference between a mildly average day and a moderately decent day. So in that sense, these changes are very, very small. And one could argue that the best thing to happen for savers yesterday was the change in the Federal Reserve's uh, projected path for interest rates. Which led to quite a, a steep rise in, in the market. Yes, you know that that's probably enriched us more than the the chancellor's So,
0: so nothing to do with the budget at all. There, it's, it's it's market forces elsewhere that are more
2: important overall than the budget. Quite quite possibly, yes. I mean the main event of the day was, was in the US, not the UK.
0: mm hmm Um. Another thing that cropped up in the budget, which was actually flagged in advance, was that the Chancellor is going to consult on how to set up a market that will enable um, retired investors who've already bought their annuities to sell them on. Do you think that's a good idea, Chris, to sell an annuity?
2: If you're on your deathbed, it might well be. Um, But otherwise, um, I find it very difficult to believe that you'll get decent value for it. For the simple reason that Um, if you want to sell an annuity, um, your annuity provider will regard that as a sign that you haven't got very long to live and will therefore offer you a pretty pitiful price Mm
0: -hmm.
3: for
2: it. It's the the old-fashioned adverse selection problem.
0: I mean, these are uh, secure income for life that we're talking about here. They're... um I mean, I know a lot of even wealthy investors will buy an annuity to secure a minimum level level of income in retirement, and, and that may continue despite all the new pension freedoms. What do you think, Adrian Lowcock? Would you agree with me on that?
1: Um, I think the, the key, the issue with this is that, um, yes, you do need to consider uh, why you bought the annuity in the first place, and it gives you that secure income, and, and annuities will continue to play an important role in retirement planning, uh, because having A fixed income, a guaranteed income, even for the very well-off, is really useful for all those uh, everyday spends, the necessaries that you need to spend retirement money on. I think the secondary annuity market is probably going to remain somewhat small and probably ineffective because, as Chris pointed out, you're not going to get a particularly attractive uh, uh, return on on the sale, um, albeit the, the tax barriers will be removed, the, the, the value you'll actually get for an annuity will probably remain quite low in the secondary market.
0: Um, I mean, looking beyond the budget, um, despite all the changes that come in, the, the issue that all investors are facing is how to save well for the long term. Chris Dillo, in this week's Reader Portfolio Clinic, you warn investors about something called creative destruction that can happen when you're investing for the long term. Chris, what is creative destruction and and why does it matter for investors?
2: Well, creative destruction was a phrase coined by Joseph Schumpeter back in the 1930s. And what he meant by this was that economic growth doesn't come simply from existing firms getting bigger and selling more, but it comes instead from new firms arising and, in effect, taking the place of existing firms. And this matters enormously for investors because what it means is that if you hold a basket of firms that exist today, then in 20, 30 years' time, there's a fairly big risk that some of those firms will will disappear or or, or shrink to virtually nothing.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So um,
0: you you argue that this um, really is something which people need to think about when they're investing for the long term. You can't buy um, companies now and expect to hold everything for the next 30 years. You're going to have to do some trading to a certain extent. Is that right?
2: Well, maybe not, um, because the, pro- the problem is that, that that assumes that you'll be able to foresee um, the beneficiaries from creative destruction. And, and this isn't necessarily the case. Um, I would favour tracker funds. On, on this basis, for the simple reason that holding an equal uh, holding a capitalization weighted basket of shares gives you some sort of protection against creative destruction, because it means that as a particular company shrinks, then your holding of that company um, as a share of your portfolio shrinks with it. You know, mm-hmm. and a, tr- a tracker fund, in effect, automatically invests in in new companies and it invests um according to, according to their weight in the index.
0: Uh, Adrian Lowcock when when you're thinking about investing for the long term do tracker funds spring to mind is that your
1: I think your, um view? T- tracker funds um have a role to play uh, in some markets they uh, they 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 really do suit because um active managers uh either struggle to outperform or um in the u k we don 't have access to the active managers that are good so in the u s in particular it's a difficult market to get um Good active management—they're just not available to the UK retail investor. Um, but on the on the other side, you can you can sort of identify good managers, and particularly in the UK smaller companies and mid-cap space, you can find good managers who uh, um, are actually able to identify uh, stocks and individual companies that uh, are are going to sort of come up the ranks and replace the, the, the establishment, if you like, um, and, and, and add value. So I think a blend uh, is usually quite uh, useful because you can sort of complement a, a tracker portfolio with with some really good active manage, fund managers. But it is about picking the few that are exceptional.
0: Chris, do you accept that, the, that you could um, introduce some active managers into the mix? Um,
2: I'm not sure. How that's possible over the very long run, I mean you might be able to identify one or two exceptional managers over one, two, or three years, for example. but if you're talking about investing for thirty years, say on behalf of your children or you just want a very easy way of preparing for your retirement, then there's pretty then there's very little chance that a, a good manager will remain good for that long. And there's also not much chance of you of you spotting him. Um, so we've got some big uncertainties there. But there's one absolute certainty about active management, and that's that it costs you more than a tracker fund. And if you're investing for 30 years, then an, an extra management charge uh, of half to 1% per year compounds absolutely horribly o- over 30 years. So it might be the case that you can do better than a tracker fund but a, a tracker fund saves you the the certain downside of higher fees so so for me a tracker fund might not be fully optimal but it's not a bad second second best you know maybe there's a trade off between optimizing and satisfying <laughs> and and um satisfying um suggests that we we should have a very big weight in in trackers. But if
0: we want to add some active managers into the mix, Adrian, how, how do we improve our chances of selecting a good active manager? What do you need to look for?
1: It's getting that balance of, of looking for a manager who has a um, strong conviction in the process that they use and evidence that that process does work. And the understanding, um, I tend to look for managers who, who don't perhaps change their mind at a job of a hat. So good managers will actually, as Chris rightly pointed out, they will go through periods of underperformance. The very best managers can, can sort of underperform for three to five years and, and come out the other end. So it's really about having a strong process, conviction in their processes, and, and, and an understanding of why, if that process isn't working, why it isn't working, and whether they need to do something to tweak it, or, and fix that or or whether it's just a element of what's going on in the market, because stock markets follow trends and fashions they uh, um you know we have the dot com era of the late twentieth uh, uh, century and and that led to equity income funds being very unpopular for a long period of time, and then it's been replaced, and we've got equity income being very popular now and managers who don't invest in those popular areas of the time will be. Uh, Out of fashion for a period, but that that changes, so you, you've got to have you know, understand what a manager does and a manager to understand why they are performing and, or not performing at the time, so it's really sort of making sure you, you've got a, a sort of mixture of things, but strong process, understanding of the process, and understanding of why the process is or isn't working, and I think that's some of the key, key characteristics I look for in a manager.
0: Great, thanks, those are some great tips. Now thanks very much, Adrian and Chris, for talking us to us today. Thank you Thank you. In this week's magazine, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Leonora Walters has been looking in detail at enterprise investment schemes. These invest in private equity investments, typically early stage companies that are high risk but offer good growth prospects. And enterprise investment schemes also offer a number of generous tax reliefs, including 30% income tax relief if you hold the investments for three or more years. Now Leonora, the Chancellor's actually announced some changes to enterprise investment schemes in the budget. Can you tell us about these?
3: Yes, uh, it's not just um, enterprise investment schemes. It also affects venture capital trusts, VCTs, and um, seed
0: enterprise investment schemes as well. They're similar schemes that do um, private equity or early stage companies and they have different types of uh, tax tax reliefs. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, Just first of all, I mean probably not anything for investors to consider it's the changes to the investment rules that the um the managers running them will have to consider uh so generally managers aren't too concerned i think that's the main thing so i don't think that um you know the investment prospects of these funds are particularly under threat one of the main changes is that um vct and eis will no longer be able to invest in a company more than twelve years old. Well, I spoke to a few managers yesterday and they said to me, We we rarely look at companies over twelve years old, so it's not really an issue. The other thing that's been changed, there's going to be a cap on total investment received in the EIS and VCTs of fifteen million. Again, managers said, Well, have we you know we don't particularly put more than fifteen million into a company. Um so not a big issue, but there has been one positive change. They're going to increase the employee limit for what they'd call knowledge-intensive companies to 499 employees from the current 249. Now, we don't know what knowledge-intensive companies are by definition, but that's likely to be set out in the next week or two in draft legislation. Another positive move here, we're um, going to introduce a new type of VCT social VCT. Um, again, details in the ground, but we do now know, as of the budget, they'll have similar tax relief to existing VCTs, namely 30% income tax relief, no tax on the dividends and uh, no capital gains tax on share disposals. Um, when this comes in as uncertain, it just said, the
0: government will legislate for social VCTs in a future finance bill. OK, and all of these schemes are probably going to become a, a lot more appealing um, to people who think they might be nearing the lifetime limit on pensions, which yes. was also cut in the budget. To 1 so, yeah. so anyone who's a wealthy investor who's been building up funds might start to look at these tax advantage schemes, namely enterprise investment schemes and venture capital trusts in all their different forms. Yes,
3: if if, 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 if they're high risk. I mean, I think what has to be remembered about all these things, they are very high risk they're not a substitute for a pension, so they will only suit a small minority of wealthy investors with a high-risk appetite. Yes,
0: and it will be a small part of your portfolio as well. Yes, it shouldn't as well.
3: be, advisors say it should be, you know, absolute maximum limit, 10% of your portfolio and probably a lot less.
0: Okay. Now, Leonora, your big theme article in this week's magazine looks at how to choose an enterprise investment scheme.
3: What do investors need to consider? Right, when choosing an EIS, um, the, you, I think you have to remember there's a lot of different ones, it's not just a generic EIS. There's a lot of considerations and um, picking the right one is going to be important for the, your particular tax planning need your risk appetite, um, you know what you want to do, how long you want to hold, and then it's important to choose um, one run by somebody with a good track record, because there's all sorts of people out there, and um, you don't want
0: to go. What to do they people. typically
3: invest in? What kinds of VCTs, investments have you um, seen? VCTs, um, um, I mean, so EIS. Well, there's, there's all sorts of early stage companies. Now, um, they fall into different categories. Um, You get ones that invest in a single company and this is really high risk because you know all your eggs in one basket. All the advisors I talk to say that most investors will be better at looking at an EIS that takes a portfolio approach, so it'll have a few companies. Now it's still quite concentrated. When I say a few companies, that's maybe like four companies, eight companies, a lot less than your average unit trust investment trust, but still, you know, four companies dilutes the risk over four. It's better than one. Um, and um, I mean, a single company EIS investment. And some really strange things, you know, like racehorses or vineyard or whatever. The portfolio ones, you'll find that they may be looking at early stage tech or biotech companies, you know, companies that could really grow something new. So um, I'd say this maybe, you know, it's maybe a more mainstream. Yes, um, and they're even more spe- kosher,
0: so. there are even some specialist um, pub investments on yes, there as right. well.
3: Yes. Yes. yes, there are. Um, uh, again, um, they, um, you know, you, you can find ones that take a portfolio approach to that, so you're not putting all your money into one pub. Most, I mean, most EIS, um fall into three broad categories. And if you, you know, it, depending on your risk appetite and tax planning, you're going to look at one of these. You get capital preservation. This is like lower risk companies, usually backed or with strong revenues, with a focus on preserving the real value of capital, achieving a 30% income tax relief and saving 40% inheritance tax. Then you get one's exit focus, investment with focus on a predictable exit. As soon as possible, after a few minimum holding period, and many get high growth ones investment in order to promote rapid organic growth. Um, perhaps to establish a competitive advantage or support a management bio I mean this is the riskiest form but it is also the most
0: common form of EIS investing So it will depend on your, your own tax needs and your appetite for yes. risk as to which of these you go for Yes. and for more ideas on what we think is are good options, options. In-
3: Yeah we've got a full article in the Investors Chronicle which also has um, some advisor recommendations of specific funds so if you are interested in EIS um, it would be a good idea to look at the article before you do anything else and if necessary get professional advice because this is a really high risk area so even if you can do everything yourself uh you know tax planning
0: it's not something you mess about with you know get advice great stuff thanks leonora Also in this week's magazine, personal finance writer Kate Beerley has been looking at investing in Europe using exchange-traded funds and passive investments. Passive investments aim to reproduce the performance of a particular stock market index, but when you look at Europe, there are lots of different indices to choose from and different products that track them. So Kate, why do you think it's so important to get the right index? What have you found there? Well, I think, as you say, there are so many products
4: um, and so many indices in Europe, and ultimately, everything to do with the performance of your ETF is about the performance of that underlying index. Even if you have an ETF that tracks perfectly, if the index has lost 30%, then you've potentially lost a lot of money. And different indices give very different kind of access points to the European market. So if you're interested in just targeting value stocks, you would need a very different index to if you're just focus on having the most diverse range of stocks. So you really need to think about what your options are and and what kind of index to
0: go for. Okay, so um, can you tell me a bit about um, the best options among the indices that you found? Well, I think the the way to look
4: at it is to split it into the core um, indices and then some of the more what they call smart beta approaches or alternative beta approaches. So some of the kind of core ones that people would be most familiar with, I think, are the MSCI Europe, Eurostocks 50, Eurostox 600, and FTSE Developed Europe.
0: And again, there there are more than that, but those are some of the key core so the, ones. So these these are straightforward indices that are simply tracking um, big companies across Europe, really, and their yeah. and their. Whole, and their they're not trying to do anything clever. They're just tracking the, the no, straight exactly. performance of the companies.
4: But but even there, there's quite a high divergence between them. So, for example, the MSCI Europe has 439 constituents. Its biggest single exposure is to Nestle. Um, and it does have 31% exposure to the UK. So even though this is diverse, you know, if you hold a FTSE 100 or, or a lot of UK indices, you could be kind of doubling up there. Um, I mean, it compares to something like the Eurostox 50, which is 50 Uh, stocks and much more concentrated in that sense but also more liquid so easier to buy and sell
0: potentially and some will have some of these indices have exposure to the UK and some don't am I right
4: yeah that Uh, that is right and and some are kind of more focused on different sectors than others for example the stocks Europe 600 is only focused on super sectors so again you need to think about what country particularly want exposure to and what sectors um, but those are only the core ones then mm. you 've got these these smart beta indices
0: and smart beta is like um sort of technical overlay to get mm, well, yeah the get idea, a different results yes the idea is is they use a
4: rule based approach to isolate certain elements of the parent index so they 'll just try and take either for example the lowest volatility stocks or the highest value stocks um it 's almost a kind of halfway house between passive and active mm-hmm. and This is good. For example, if you're worried about being exposed to volatile stocks in Europe, you could go for something like the MSCI Europe Minimum Volatility Index, which takes the lowest risk stocks from the MSCI Europe. Um, Or you could go for something like the Euro Stocks Low Risk Weighted 50, which um, takes the stocks from its parent index and gives the biggest weighting to the lowest volatile or alternatively, there are things like the Societe Generale European Quality Income Index, which just takes um, these stocks with the best yield. So, and I mean, uh, again, it's, it's an enormous and expanding area. But if you think, you know, you're particularly worried about value, volatility, things like that, it might be worth looking into one of those.
0: Okay, great. So choose your index, then find the product that tracks that index. And for more information about it, read this week's magazine. Kate, you've also written this week our fund tip. Can you tell us what you've chosen and a bit about it?
4: Yeah, this week I chose Target Healthcare Real Estate Investment Trust. It's a REIT which owns care home assets around the UK. And I've chosen it because it's an interesting kind of alternative source of income. So it's not a UK equity fund or or a bond fund. Um, And it has quite a high yield without being extremely high risk. Um, the idea behind it is is that the UK has an ageing population, so demand for care homes is on the increase. Um, according to Age UK, the number of over 85s, who are the prime users of care homes, will double in the next 20 years. So there's quite a solid argument there for the underlying asset. Um, and as I said, an alternative income source, so it's less correlated to potentially the other assets within your portfolio. And it also has quite a high yield Um, Based on the prospective dividend payout of 6.12 pence, its yield is just under 6%. So that's pretty high in the current environment. And it also has quite a reliable income stream in terms of rent from these care homes. The leases tend to be very long term, so about 30 years. And that income is inflation linked and tends to increase year on year. So that's all quite appealing in terms of um, income sustainability. Uh, The cost is one82 Percent um, when performance fees are taken into account.
0: That sounds quite high, but um, it it's a specialist vehicle, though, isn't it? So yeah, you can't expect them to be incurring extra. Yes, yeah.
4: and I mean when you're looking at kind of areas of alternative income, some t- do tend to be quite expensive, and the premiums tend to be very high. Um, if you're looking at infrastructure funds, for example, which which would be a kind of another alternative to this, the premiums can be in the kind of double digits. The premium here is reasonably high it's nine percent but that's nowhere near the kind of double digit territory of some other funds
0: okay so it's one to take a look at and maybe maybe buy or put on your watch list yeah great stuff so you can read more about the budgets and enterprise investment schemes in this week's issue of investors chronicle thank you for listening
3: planning for your next trip